So every generation, every culture, every, every time a group of people get together, anytime you see a human being in a place, you will witness the temptation to find meaning to determine meaning. To, to, every generation actually attempts to find meaning. And, and the way that they start, actually, is they attempt to define God first. Every, so every culture, every generation, every group of people, every individual, in order to find meaning, you actually have to start with defining God. So, uh, so I, am, uh, I did not grow up in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I am kind of just going off of some small cultural phenomena that I uh, have witnessed and, and evaluated. And so I'm going to kind of make an assessment uh, of some different uh, cultural messages about God, some different ways that, that through the decades we have tried to define God. So again, this is not based, I, I cannot tell you how much this is not based on any solid data. This is kind of my own personal evaluation here. So, uh, okay, so in the 70s, I, wanna, I think the 70s, they defined God as dead. God is dead. This is kind of the cultural definition of God. Uh, and it started to come to kind of fruition in the 60s, right? But then it arose really in the 70s. And this is actually like if you witness what was happening politically in our country, uh, this, this comes to be really true. Specifically, two big things started to happen in the 70s. Number one, Roe v. Roe v. Wade took place in 73, right? And so this is, we don't have to have any sort of moral grounding to tell us what to do, right? This is, uh, this is we can take an unborn life because we are about protecting individual rights, right? But we forget about the rights of that child. So, so that's Roe v. Wade. That's one thing that happened. Another thing that started to happen, you started to see religious liberty start to like, like fail in, in the legal system, right? It started to get pushed down and other things got it started to get emphasized over it. Like these things were happening in the culture. And then there's just a, kind of this, this idea that God is dead, right? So that's one thing. In 80s, I'd say uh, the, the cultural narrative. So God came back to life, but then he became a killjoy, right? So we don't like God because of the things that he tells us to do, and so there's really like you see uh, an emphasis in the '80s on youthful rebellion, right? That's kind of the idea that comes out in uh, you know heavy metal music. In fact, like you get bands like Black Sabbath, like the name Black Sabbath, the the idea that you could uh, corrupt uh, the the day that is supposed to be holy, right? And these are these are things that start treating things of God like cavalierly, right? We see that in the 80s because God is a killjoy. God wants to kill our fun, and we should just be able to have fun, right? So then the 90s, interestingly enough, God's no longer a killjoy, but God wants you to be happy, right? And so uh, you start seeing the rise of like health and wealth preachers, like start to take root. How many books were authored in the 90s, like geared towards self-help, geared towards helping you like kind of spiritually build yourself because you just need to be happy. This idea, uh, and maybe you've heard this term before, but the idea of moralistic therapeutic deism, that God exists to kind of just help you make you feel good about yourself. Uh, so then in the 2000s, the, the narrative that we had is God is like us. God is like us in the 2000s. And so, uh, so you get this idea of even like God 
God is just an overly emotional creator in the sky, right? Like he just has too many emotions and he gets mad about too many different things. In fact, he's a lot like you and me and you know nobody's perfect, so maybe not even God is perfect, right? That's the, the cultural narrative that we get. And then in the 2010s, uh, the, the decade that we just came out of, we started to get this narrative of God is always for the victim. God is always working for the victim. The person who has been oppressed in some way, shape, or form, God is always working for that person. And of course, a victim is however you define it. Like if you can define yourself to be a victim, then you can say God is for me, right? That's the idea. So why do I do this? Why do I even talk about this idea? Because these cultural narratives about God, these stories that we say God is this, we actually use these to justify ourselves to pursue whatever sort of identity that we want to pursue. So, so get this, if I can define God any way that I want to define him, then at the end of the day, I get the opportunity to justify myself in whatever pursuit I want to go after. So if I, if I say, you know what, God wants me to be happy in the 90s, you know what I'm going to do? Like, I'm going to buy the biggest house that I can buy, you know, that I can afford. I'm going to live it up. I'm not going to be generous because you know what makes me really happy? Like stuff. Stuff makes me really happy. And I just got to live my truth. I tell you what. So I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to strive for being happy. I don't have to obey God. I'm going to define God as the one who wants me to be happy. So I, just for what it's worth, this is not a new reality that we're working through. So I want to share a quote with you. This quote is from the uh, poet Voltaire. And he said, In the beginning, God created man in his own image. And man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Right? Like we, we come to God and we say, God, I think this is who you are. And because I think this is who you are, I'm going to kind of live this way. I'm going to justify myself and whoever I want to be. And, and so this is, this is a thing that human beings have been doing since the garden. Now, uh, what happened in the garden is, well, God creates, tells us who we are, right? He gives us authority to rule creation. He, he builds this garden for us, this place where we can walk in his presence. And then what, what did humanity do? What did Adam and Eve do? Well, they kind of like put themselves in the place of God and said, no, we're going to make the rules. Right. And ever since then, we have said, no, I'm going to make the rules. Like that's kind of the, the pattern that we've been going for. And actually, like this happens in Egypt. Right. So interestingly enough, Egypt, we as we watch the Israelites in Egypt, Egypt, like the Egyptians, they said, you know what? Like a, a basic human desire, a basic human want that we have is like we need food. Right. Well, when you walk by the Nile River and food can grow plentifully and you recognize that you are being provided for because the Nile River is like flowing freely and like, oh, gosh, I, I guess because I want food and food being provided, I better like turn the Nile into a god. Right? Like, I, I should probably worship whatever the God of the Nile is because that's giving me what I want. That's giving me food, right? How about, uh, how about like, power, it, it, military? Like, what it means, like, Egypt had all of its power. Egypt was a significant nation because it had this massive military. It had all of these chariots. And so, you know what we're going to do? Like, I guess we should probably have a God of, like, warfare. A God who helps us to kind of justify ourselves in our power. We, we need to sacrifice to that God because he's kind of giving us this status that we want next to the nations around us, right? 
What about life? Like, it seems that the sun rises in the sky and gives life to everything. You know what I think we should do? We should probably have a sun god. We should sacrifice to that god, right? And so every time it's like something that we want and we see it given to us in creation, and so then we see that thing in creation and we turn it into our god and then use that to justify our desires. So, uh, so we define God by our desires, and then we use... So then what happens then is our reference point for who is God is our desires. Like it, and if my desires are different than your desires, then who is God? Like if, if our desires are what defines God, then, then who actually is God? And this pattern continues in pop culture. It's interestingly enough, like the, the way that pop culture refers to some sort of divine being is they use the term the universe. Like, so they, they talk about God as the universe. You know, the universe really wants this for me, or, or I have to go out and find my purpose in the universe, or I'm going to ask the universe to kind of work out events in this certain way for me, right? And so I need to go find my purpose in the universe. I need to go discover my meaning in the universe. Like, these are the things that are said. And, and at the end of the day, all we're doing is we're just taking our desires and imposing it upon God and saying, that's God. And so this is humanity's problem. We find our identity in whatever we find most significant. We find our identity in whatever we find most significant. And so, so the issue with this is that we have no compass. We have no sense of where true north is. And, and therefore, we are kind of left to be swayed by whatever spirit of the age comes along. So if something else comes along and say, no, this should be your desire. You should chase after this desire. And say, okay, then I'm going to orient my life towards that, right? So what is the solution to this? Is it maybe like we need to find the best idea of all the ideas that are out there? But, but then, like, what determines what's best? Like, how do you define what the best idea is? How do you even figure that out if you don't have any sort of objective uh, reference point? You run into the same problem. Uh, so maybe then the solution is everybody should just do what's right in their own eyes. Like, that's worked out before, Right. Uh, what about, uh, what, maybe, maybe we could do this. Maybe we just need to find one really, really good human. Like one maybe even perfect human and let them make the rules. You know what we did? We killed him. Like we put him on a cross, right? So, okay, so, uh, so this, this whole concept, it starts to devolve because we can't find a solution to our identity. And our only way out of this dilemma, ultimately, is that we need... Somebody who has a greater authority than we do to speak in from the outside and actually tell us who, are, who we are, to actually do the defining for us. And so that, that brings us to Exodus 19. That's where we are. And so these next two weeks, we got two weeks left in Exodus, and then we're going to take a break for the fall. We'll, uh, fall into December, we're going we're gonna to take a bit of a break and dig into some more uh, practical stuff just for how do we love our neighbors well, how do we uh, uh, draw them to Jesus, and, and those kinds of ideas. But, but these two weeks, these next two weeks, we're in this series called Approach. And uh, the, the idea that we're, we're working from is that the Israelites, they have been in Egypt, but now they are coming to meet with God at the mountain. They're approaching God. And there's something about this event. Like they, they had defined themselves by the standards that existed in a pagan society. But God saved them out of that pagan society. And now they are coming to him. They're going to meet with God. And God's actually going to tell them like who they are. They actually officially become a nation here. This is where this happens. They're going to approach God and, and they're going to get a new point of reference. 
for what is true about their world. They'll actually understand who really determines their identity. And the hint is this. They don't just like go out and find it somewhere. It's given to them. So uh, Exodus 19, verse 2, it says this. At the end of verse 2, it says, There Israel encamped before the mountain. They're at the mountain. And then verse 3, it says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain. Now he's going to give them some instructions. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. He has a message to deliver. So verse 4, here's the message. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So, so you remember your identity. Hey, Israel, remember your identity in Egypt. Remember who they said that you were? Like you were slaves. You were property. You were a means of them maintaining and keeping their power. And therefore, like you were less than everyone else. You were at the bottom of the totem pole, right? And, and so that was your point of reference. That's who you were. But then also you look at the way the Egyptians got their identity. Like, like Pharaoh just worked to maintain his power. He strove, he used you, he did whatever he could. He justified all sorts of atrocities to kind of maintain his power. And, and you know what? Like for Pharaoh, it was, I desire power, and therefore the gods must want me to have more power. And so I'm going to do whatever I can to maintain that power. And so, so you kind of learn all these lessons about identity in Egypt. And then what did God do? Well, God showed up. And he put every Egyptian system to open shame. He took the gods and put them on display and showed how he was more powerful than every single one of them. And then so, like, what did, what did Egypt tell Israel about their identity? Your identity is in your work, maybe. Maybe it said, you know what, food, like food and provision comes when you please the right God. Uh, maybe, maybe it said something like, you know what, if you have military as a nation, you have everything. These are the, the lessons about identity. And, and so God shows up, and, and what does he do? Well, well, if your identity is in your work, God shows up, shuts down the, the Nile River, and, and functionally shuts down life in Egypt. Like, nobody can do anything. So if your identity is in your work, well, guess what? Like, you ain't got no work to do. And, and then what does he do in, this, in the wilderness? Like, okay, so, so not only does he teach Israel... Uh, that, that your identity can't be in your work in Egypt when he shuts life down. But then he takes them out into the wilderness and he says, like, one day, you're not going to do anything. You're going to take one day and you're just going to rest. And I'm going to provide for you anyway. Okay. So, uh, so then, talk about the idea of identity being in food or provision or resources. What does God do in Egypt? Well, God comes along and he destroys their food resources, right? He, he puts famine in the land. And then and out in the wilderness, he takes Israel out in the wilderness just to show them this. And he, he actually like gives them food. And he says, you know what you can't do? You can't gather it for yourself. Like you can't go and, and supply it for like the next day. You can't hoard it up because you, you're going to have to learn to rely on me from day to day to day. Right? So, so, so then maybe your identity is in having power, or maybe, maybe even the Israelites think, like, we need to have a strong military. So what did God do? Well, he took the Israelites to the edge of the Red Sea with this massive military 
force behind them, and they start walking through the Red Sea, and God shuts down the Egyptian military by letting the water seep into the, the, the dirt and, and create mud and lock up the chariot wheels and all of this stuff, right? He put the Egyptian forces, the Egyptian army, to open chains. So that's one thing that he did. And then in the wilderness, what does he do? Takes them up against the Amalekites, and he says, hey, if you stay focused on my power, you are going to overcome. So every step of the way, God's actually like kind of putting away this idea that your identity is found in something in this world, and he's kind of showing it as useless. Like every form of Egypt's identity that they would be prone to, to kind of find their truth, find their meaning in, it, he's showing that like none of this holds up to be sustainable. Every single source of identity in Egypt is lost. And you know what? The story, like, since Egypt, the story hasn't changed. Like, our world's way of finding identity is useless and lost. Maybe it's like, uh, you know what? You find your identity in, in your work or your accomplishments. Well, then what do you do when a pandemic comes and shuts life down? What do you do when the company restructures and they take your position out? What do you do when the business can't survive because of the changing economy? What do you do when, uh, when they start taking advantage, when, you're, when your uh, bosses start taking advantage of your commitment and loyalty and abusing you as a resource in your company? Maybe you'd be, uh, maybe you'd be tempted to find your identity just in the idea of progress. Or maybe, maybe you want to like, associate with the collective identity of progress. Well, what do you do when your definition of progress doesn't end up lining up with your culture's definition? Like, what do you do when the progress that you once worked for actually, like, gets redefined by somebody else and somebody actually starts to work against that because that's what progress means now? Maybe you want to find your identity in your family. What do you do when your family member betrays you? What do you do when your family won't meet your expectations? You know, we, we live in a world of people who are trained to go out and find their identity by whatever seems most significant to them. And the reality is there's nothing new under the sun. Like, we've been trying to find our identity in these things for millennia. And history shows that when these things become the foundation of our identity, what happens? They either leave people feeling betrayed and abused and empty, or... They do end up making you happy, but at the expense of tons of other people. So, so this, is, this is what happens when we build our identity on whatever we find most significant. This is the result, actually, of like the brokenness of our rebellion uh, just running rampant in our world. This is what happens when we tell God, I'll decide what's good for I'll define what I want. And so God has now said to Israel, Israel, I'm going to take issue with this. And how does he do it? He confronts the Egyptians and he shames them in every way possible. And he says, Israel, you saw what I did to the Egyptians who functioned like this. And so the message to the Israelites is God has exposed your sources of identity as insufficient. When he showed up to the Egyptians, he exposed their sources of identity to be insufficient. This is actually Jesus. Like, he points out this very same message. When he talks about the guy who built his house on the rock and the guy who built his house on the sand. And he said, where's the rock at? The rock is on me and my commandments. Like, that's where it's at. And everything else is the sand. 
And every time people build their houses on the sand, the the, the winds come and the, the storms rage and the waves beat against that house and it falls down. So if this is true, if this is true, if the, our sources of identity are insufficient, then the question is, is there something better? So let's watch what God tells them. It goes on in verse 4 and says, so, so you saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Yeah, he, he has this reminder for them. Hey, Egypt was a broken place. Egypt didn't give you any direction. It didn't give you uh, any significant meaning. You didn't have a purpose. You just existed to fuel the system there. Egypt showed you nothing good. And I exposed it. And then what did I do? I saved you out of it. So this is the first thing that God tells them. Hey, you know what? In Egypt, you were lost. Now you are rescued. In Egypt, you were lost. Now you are rescued. So for the Christian, what does this look like? Because we're not Israel. We didn't get saved out of Egypt. What does this look like for us? So God, for us, he exposed our brokenness. He exposed our false sources of identity. And then what did he do? Well, Jesus came and he wore the wounds to pay the price for those false sources of identity. And then Jesus destroyed the power of your enemy who is striving to keep you inside of those false sources of identity. And then uh, Jesus came and he made you clean and right by his sacrifice. That's what he did. So not only did he expose it, but then he came and saved you from it. So now you don't have to like go out into the broken world and, and find your identity because God actually came and pursued you and gave you your identity. That's what happened. You don't have to like go like find out who you are and try to understand more about like what you could be. No, like God comes and tells you, let me tell you who you are. You're rescued. You are saved. You have been pulled out of something that was full of death. You were lost. But now you've been found. So uh, verse 5 goes on. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. So, so no, notice the if statement, right? God says, you know what? If you will show me value. If you will show me that you value me, and if you will actually honor the value that I have for you, If you will do these things, then I will give you what you have been asking for. I will keep fighting for you. But here's the reality. If you do not, if you don't honor the things that I honor, if you don't value this value that I placed on you, then I will stop fighting for you. Like that's kind of the idea that's presented here. Actually, this is this if-then statement. This is a, a common arrangement between kings and the people. That they, uh, that they conquer or that they rescue. Like the idea is the king comes and says, this is what I did for you. So if you will obey my laws, I will continue to protect you. Like that kind of idea is presented. And, and so I want to, like you get the benefits of the king. When the king comes and rescues you and does these things for you, he says, I will give you my benefits. So what is the benefit that they get? Well, they get to be called a treasured possession. Like just so you know, this makes no sense for any God in the ancient Near East. No God would call people their treasured possession, 
right? Like people are pawns in a game to them. They are a means to an end. They are what accomplishes. So Israel is unique and that God says to a people, you will be my treasured possession. Like it's usually the other way around. The God is the person's treasured possession, right? It's the thing that they keep in their house. It's the thing that they bow down to, the thing that they give offerings to, right? Like this is the idea that's presented. But never does a God in the ancient Near East tell people, you are my treasure. And here comes God, and he gives this message to Israel. And he says, I've rescued you. And now I'm calling you to be more than rescued. I'm calling you to be treasured. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you direction. And I want you to receive that direction. I want you to fulfill that direction. I want you to actually be my treasured people. So the second identity that God gives to them is, you are lost, but now you are highly valued. You were lost, but now you are highly valued. So I have a question for you. Like when you think about your relationship with God, like what is your kind of consideration of the first thought that God has about you? Like when you approach God, what like what is your impression of like God's impression of you? Like how do you think God thinks of you? Because I, I get the sense that, especially if we've grown up in any sort of Christian sphere, that um our first kind of knee-jerk response is, maybe I'm like unwanted by God. Maybe I'm worthless. You know, God, God really, he's kind of just obligated to this relationship with me, right? Like, because obviously, like, I don't provide anything of value here. God's just doing it because he, like, required to do it. Like, he's just kind of doing this out of duty, right? Like that, the temptation to think, Along these lines is incredible, right? We, we think of God, and God just like doesn't like me. He doesn't want me, right? These kinds of concepts. So if that's my second question, if that's like the idea that you have, I want to ask you a second question, which is this. What if every thought you had about God started off grounded in how much God actually values you? Like if what if every single thought you had about God as you approach him actually started with the idea that he has placed immense value on your soul? And so, so you might hear that and you might say, yeah, but, but God's angry about the things that I've done. God's angry with me about the things that I've done. Okay, sure, okay, I'll go with you for, for that for a little bit. Why is he angry? Why is God angry? Sin, sin and rebellion, like these things that we do, these things that displease God, they are so problematic in the first place because of the value that God has placed upon us. Like when, we, when the Bible gives us instruction to not sin, like part of the reason that sin is so problematic is because God has placed immense value on it and we've thrown it in the trash. Right? Like that's what we're doing. And so, so when God calls you away from an action and to a different action, it's because he knows that the action you're pursuing will steal away your ultimate joy. Because he values you so much and he's actually pursuing what he knows is good for you. So every command to walk away from something and walk into life with him, he gives that call because it actually leads to life. So, so he says to Israel, Israel, I, I value you so much 
And I'm actually going to work to show the nations around you how much I value you. Like those other nations are going to look at me and look at the way that I act towards you. And they're going to see that you are my treasured possession. And so if you want the value that I have for you to continue to work for you, then you need to show me the same honor that I'm showing you. You need to show yourselves the same honor that I'm showing you. You need to see the value that I have. You know what? This is actually where Jesus changed the game because in our brokenness, like we could never perfectly meet this if-then statement. So Jesus, he actually fulfilled the law for us through his sacrifice and actually enabled us. So, so what he did, he came and lived perfectly. He lived the law, the law out perfectly. He fulfilled all of the ifs for us. And then what he did when he went to the cross is he enabled us to take ownership of his perfection while he went to the cross and took ownership of all of our failures. Like that's the exchange that took place. And so Jesus comes and actually like gives us this identity where we actually can all the time be called highly valued by God. We can be called God's treasured possession. And so the good news is if you follow Jesus, like God's value for you is constantly on display. Like you fail, you know what you do? You go back to the cross and watch God's value for you on display in Jesus. You sin, you stumble, you fall short, you go back to the cross and look at God's value on display for you through the person of Jesus. So the second piece of identity that God offers to his people is he says, you are highly valued. It's not, you need to go out and find your value. It's you need to receive the value that I'm giving. So verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this is the second benefit of the if statement. And, and this benefit is one about purpose. So, so God is in the business of drawing people to himself. Like this is, this is what he does. He, he shows people who he is. We actually like watched it play out in the story of the Exodus as, uh, as God was there in Egypt and he was working. He actually like acknowledged the possibility that some Egyptians were going to be drawn to him because of what he was doing in Egypt. And not only that, he actually acknowledged the possibility that as Israel left and went out to the wilderness, that there were going to be sojourners out there in the wilderness who are going to be drawn to God because of his mighty actions, because of his deeds, because this is what he does. He doesn't just like go after one people, but then he opens it up and he gives his people like this opportunity to display who he is to the world around them, right? So when God calls them a kingdom of priests, what do priests do? Priests help people relate to God. Priests show people who God is, the kind of standards that he has, like what he is to do for the world, how he works, and, and what his ways are. And so when God calls them a kingdom of priests, saying, you know what you do? Like, I'm showing you who I am. But now, there is an entire world that does not know their creator. And you are going to show them who I am. So, so you're the nation that I'm going to use to show the whole earth how to relate to me. You are the nation through which I'm going to communicate myself to the rest of the world. So get this, you slave people, you people who were kind of defined by your reality in Egypt, I have chosen you. You are my special people. 
So I want you to imagine the significance. As they are hearing these words that Moses is relating to them, I want you to imagine the significance of what they're experiencing right now. The creator of everything is telling this people that they are special, that they are chosen, that they are pursued, that there are millions of people around the world that he could have chosen to love, but he loved them, and now he wants to use them to show him to the rest of the world. We treat the idea of God offering us identity, offering us purpose with kind of a cavalier attitude. But when God says, let me define you, there's a really significant moment because the creator of the universe reaches down and says, I can tell you who you are. You may be trying to find who you are. Let me tell you who you are. And that's, that's what God says to the Israelites. You know what? In Egypt, it was hard for them to find a compelling purpose. But now the creator who rescued you out of Egypt and who highly values you, he has now given you this purpose of showing, of introducing the rest of the world to their creator. You're going to show the rest of the world who I am. And so, so what does he tell Israel? He says, Israel, you were lost in Egypt, but now you have true purpose. And this is... This is true of our identity in Jesus. Like we now have a purpose in which we exist where Jesus brings us to himself and then we're given this command to love God and love other people. And as we walk out into our world, like we actually show the world who our God is, like who created them, what kind of God he is, a God who gives purpose, a God who highly values people. And so our words and actions, they're all geared towards one thing. Like we show the world who God is. We show the world what it means to relate to God. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it talks about this. It says, but, it's the same language that was used in Exodus, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Like you're going to go out and you are going to live and you are going to do deeds and you are going to speak words. And through all of these things, people are going to look at that and they're going to understand something about who I am. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God's given us purpose. So um, verse seven, Moses, uh, he came and called the elders of the people and and sat before them, and he told them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. So Moses comes and tells them, hey, Israel, this is who you are. Like, you are saved. You are highly valued. You have, like, a real purpose here. Imagine for these people how meaningful it would have been to them to have somebody far more powerful than they were come and tell them when everybody who had power over them before told them that they were dogs that they were less than human. But now God comes and tells them who they are. He actually offers them an identity. Imagine how meaningfully this would land for them. God says to them, you are defined by my pursuit. You don't go out and find your identity. Egypt could not give you your identity. You were lost there. Let me tell you how you are defined. I pursue you. I pursue you. Watch how they respond in verse 8. All the people answered together and said. So we know what happens after this, right? Like, let's not talk about what happens after this right now because we know 
kind of what happens to their heart. We know that they disobey later on. And maybe you don't know that, so I'll just kind of give you the spoiler alert. Uh, They don't keep this word that they say here. But recognize that they are so motivated in their hearts by what is told them, this identity that God gives to them, that they say, we're going to do it. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. You know what? There's something compelling about the Almighty Creator of the universe coming to you and telling you, you know what? You may not be able to find your identity. You're never going to be able to find it yourself. Let me give you. Let me show you who you are. Something happens in their hearts in that moment. They say, we will do it. We will be these people. We will kind of receive this identity. We will live for this purpose. So what? So what? What what do we do with all of this? So number one, our identity compasses keep changing. Every decade, we're given a new thing to pursue. In fact, right now, the the way cultural um, progress is working, the the way things change, like every three to four years, we have a new cultural pursuit we can go after. A new thing that determines meaning for us. Every decade, we try to like redefine God and kind of justify our pursuits. We're finding increasing ways to kind of let ourselves have and seek and pursue whatever it is that we want. And the reality is, this creates an incredibly confusing society and world. Like we are confused about what is true north. So, you know, like the, the Pirates of the Caribbean, you have, uh, you have Jack Sparrow, and he has this compass. And the compass doesn't point north. It just kind of spins around in a circle. Why does it spin around in a circle? Because he doesn't know what he wants. Right? And, and whenever you give the, the compass to somebody, that compass, it never points north. It points to what the person wants most. Right? Like, that's the idea. This compass is a compass that we're handing to all of these people and say, what do you want most? Go and pursue that. Find your identity in that. And the issue is, is that none of these compasses actually have a north. They never actually point in a solid direction. And this creates a problem. This creates a really confused society So what do we need? We need the one who made us to define us. We need the one who made us to define us. So number two, the one who made us leads with pursuit. So so in this arrangement in Exodus 19, there are two things that happen, and we're going to get to the second thing next week, but I just want to give you an idea. God displays his power like in a massive way to the people. It's terrifying. Like, he utterly scares them. Before he does that, he tells them all of these words about their identity, everything that they are, everything that he's done for them. He leads with his pursuit. So John 3.16 tells us God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Like, God pursues people in the world. Jesus reveals to us God's love, and God says to humanity, you know what, you, have made, you may have rejected me, but I am pursuing you. And this is what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. Now, uh, like, some may have wandered, and we have tried to find some identity for ourselves out in the world. We've tried to define God for ourselves, but, and, and we go, and we seek and we try to find these different things, and the reality is, is that 
We need a God who says, no, I found you. I found you. And that's like, you know, we've been referencing it here off and on, but the song Amazing Grace, it's not, it's not like I, was, I once was lost, but like now I've found my way to you, God. It's not I once was lost, but now I've just discovered something significant and meaningful to me. It's not I once was lost, and now like I, I'm finding my meaning in you. No, it's I, I once was lost, but now... I'm found. You found me. I didn't find you. I don't define you. I cannot find you with this broken heart of mine. My only hope is if you find me. God pursued you. God rescued you. God extended forgiveness to you. God called you. God gave purpose to you. God sent his son to die for you. God gave you the Holy Spirit to empower you and live in you. Like if God does not pursue us, if God does not give us our identity, then we are lost. But the good news this morning, church, is that God has indeed given us our identity. He calls us loved. He calls us highly valued. He calls us pursued. He gives us purpose and meaning. Even when we live in this world where it can't be. Church, that is extremely good news. I pray with you. Father, this morning as we just consider the amazing reality of what it is that you do for us, what you offer us, what you give to us. Lord, you are so, so generous. When you created everything and, and in creation, you stepped in and you offer identity. But there are so many messages that might lead us to find our identity and other things, even to pursue the things that we desire most. But God, you've been gracious enough to show us, expose that our desires do not lead us to a good place. They can't actually sustain, that they, they, they can't actually hold up the house. But Lord, you didn't just leave us to crumble. You offered us something true, something good, and something that we could hold on to about Lord, you called us, pursued, you reached out and you found us. May our hearts never lose sight of your strength. Lord, as we walk out into the world, may we be people who convey these very realities to the people around us. That there is a, there's a God who gives identity, who gives purpose, who gives and that he is seeking and pursuing and finding people. Lord, help us remember these things. Hold on to these things. We pray all of this in Jesus.